Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 33, Jesus says, Hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and he set a hedge around it. He dug a wine press in it and he built a tower and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, he will destroy those wicked miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in his eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him to be a prophet. Remember the chapter opened with three signs to Israel. There was the presentation of the king in verses 1 through 11 as Jesus enters in Jerusalem to the shouts of Hosanna. Then there was the purifying of the temple in verses 12 through 16 as Jesus drove out the money changers. And then the cursing of the fig tree in verses 17 through 22. Now Matthew gives three parables concerning Israel. The parable of the two sons, one obedient and one disobedient in verses 28 through 32. The parable of the vine dressers or the landowner, or, or the, the, the parable that's been called the parable of the vineyard and the husbandman. And later again, we'll see the parable of the marriage feast in chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. What do all these parables have in common? Remember, they're given in the context of the religious leader's question concerning the authority of Jesus. Remember, the religious leaders ask Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things, saying these things, and who gave you this authority in verses 23 through 24? You'll remember that Jesus exposes the condition of their heart by asking them a question. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from men? And you'll remember 
their response, their calculated answer. If we say from heaven, he will say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, the fact that everyone believes that John is a prophet will cause everyone to, to, to reject us. John told the truth. He told the truth about God and he told the truth about Jesus. And the religious leaders rejected the message of John. So the Lord is reluctant to reveal new truth to those who already have made the commitment that they're going to reject what truth they have received. Having rejected John, they rejected Jesus. In short order, again, Jesus gives three parables. The first, about the rejection of a father's authority. The second, the rejection and the killing of a son. And the third, the rejection of an invitation to a wedding feast, which becomes a type and a picture of the rejection of the Holy Spirit. And so the parables show the spiritual history of Israel. They're chosen to be fruitful, but they fail to bear fruit. She disobeys the father. That's the parable of the two sons. Crucifies the son. That's the parable of the vineyard. Resists the Holy Spirit. That's the parable of the marriage feast. Today, she is set aside. And the blessings of Christ have been given to the church. Until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, like it says in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. And so we begin with this illustration of the rejection. Look again in verse 33. It says, hear another parable. Now remember what I've already told you about parables. They are earthly stories that illustrate a heavenly truth. Remember also they have this powerful ability to reveal to those who want to know and to conceal from those who refuse to know. Jesus says there was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers. And he went into a far country. Once again, Jesus will illustrate the rejection of his claims in the form of a parable. This is a sort of mini-series. It's a storyboard of God's dealing with Israel throughout the Old Testament. The owner of the vineyard is God, and the vineyard is Israel. It says in Psalms 80, verses 8 and 9, You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it. You caused it to take deep root. You filled the land. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, it says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. In Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, we read of this picture of Israel as the vineyard. And God's expectation of fruit the vine dressers were the religious leaders, both in the past, in Isaiah, and in the present, when Jesus is giving this parable. 
The servants or the slaves were the prophets that God sent throughout Israel's history. Now remember, John is the last servant that's been given to Israel. Remember, that's the point of the question. The authority of John, is it from heaven or is it from men? He was the last slave, the last servant to come before the son. And here, Jesus is the son. He is the heir of all things. He's the final word. Jesus is God's ultimatum to humanity. So everyone listening to this parable would have immediately recognized Israel as the vineyard. Do you remember when Jesus cursed the fig tree in verses 18 through 22? He came to the tree and he expected fruit. It became once again a reiteration and revelation of the corruption of Israel on the inside and its barrenness on the outside. So the religious leaders were familiar with the passage in Isaiah chapter 5 verses 1 through 7. In fact, as you walked into the temple where Jesus was standing and he's giving this message, if you looked along the wall, there would have been a rich, embellished, ornate grapevine 150 feet long. And in that grapevine, it was this sacred symbol of the Jewish people. The grapevine spoke of their national identity. The grapevine was also a picture of joy. As a matter of fact, I have coins from the Jewish revolt periods during the time of the Maccabees, during the time of the first temple revolt, during the time of Bar Kokhba. On all of the coinage, the Jewish rebels would place grape clusters and grape vines on their coins because it represented the nation. And so a vineyard could produce massive amounts of fruit, but it required personal, perpetual care. In other words, when you had a property and it was a vineyard, if you wanted to make the most amount of money from your property, it made sense to plant grapes. But the problem with planting grapes is it takes attention, time. But guess what? The landowner possesses the vineyard. And he plants it. In the ancient world, vineyard owners would take great care and great expense to preserve and protect the safety of these vines. So the Lord God gave Moses the law and thereby placed a hedge around his people, the Jews. You'll remember that Moses takes the Jewish people right to the very border of the land. Joshua then takes them into the land. And if you think about it, the land is fortified and then protected in the north, in the west by an ocean. In other words, Israel becomes this type and a picture of a place where God wants to set aside a group of people. So God gives the people the law 
which separates them from the rest of the nations in Numbers chapter 13, verse 9. In their separation, the people of Israel were supposed to enjoy a lifestyle of friendship and fellowship with God, according to Zechariah chapter 2, verse 5, and the entire chapter Isaiah, of, of Isaiah 26. So the vineyard owners wanted healthy plants. Often they would build a hedge or a wall. They would dig vats or pits to harvest the grapes. Some of you are familiar with the harvesting of grapes and they would take the grapes and they would place them in a vat and then stomp them into juice. The wall was to keep out intruders, both human and animal. In the ancient world, particularly in Israel, there were wild boars that would ravage the vines. The pit was usually hewn from solid limestone in the ancient world, particularly of Israel. It's, it's placed on a rock and they would literally dig the vat and they would create an upper vat and then a lower vat. And this way the juice could trickle down from the upper vat into the lower vat. And then it would be gathered into skins or, or into pots. And then owners would sometimes build towers 20 feet high, 30 feet high. This tower would serve as a shelter. It would serve as storage. It would serve as protection. As a matter of fact, when you read in the book of Psalms that the Lord is a strong tower from his enemy, the type and the picture is this strong tower in the midst of, of a vineyard. Now, in the ancient world, if you're in a 30-foot tower and you are a man with a sling, you can see the vineyard and you can, you can protect the, vi the vineyard. A man with a sling in a tower was a great deterrent. So... Part of the point of this is the owner is making every provision for the vineyard to succeed. He expects great things. He expects a great crop. There's an immediate application for you and for me. God has given us every advantage in Christ Jesus the Lord. You might think, well, I don't feel like I have any great advantage. But the truth is, if you're a Christian, God lives inside of you. Jesus is in your heart. You have the presence of the Holy Spirit. Throughout the New Testament, there's this reoccurring theme that God has called the presence of the Spirit inside of you to reflect the fruit of the Spirit. Like it says in Galatians chapter 5. In John chapter 15, verses 16 and 17, Jesus says, You didn't choose me, but I have chosen you. And I've appointed that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should remain. And that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you. That you love one another. And so if you examine your life very carefully, you'll discover that God has been very generous with you. Just as he was generous with, the Israel, with Israel. Just like God established Israel as a vineyard, if you've come into a right relationship with God in Christ, God has established you in Jesus. The vineyard was equipped with everything that was necessary to make the vine dressers work profitable and easy. 
As a matter of fact, if you read in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 4, one of the things the Lord says through Isaiah is, what more could I have done with my vineyard than that which I have done? It was his way of saying, what more could I have possibly provided for you? And the same is true of the Christian. What more could I have done for you? God has done everything for you in Christ Jesus. Now Luke's gospel adds that this certain man went into a far country for a very long time. And so the picture is a person who leaves and then entrusts the vineyard to vine dressers with oversight of the vineyard, that is the leaders, who were to care for the spiritual oversight of his people. And again, this should serve as a warning for everyone who's been entrusted with the spiritual oversight of God's people. This isn't limited to the pastor. It isn't just simply the pastor or the leaders of the church who have been entrusted with spiritual oversight. If you're a husband, you've been entrusted with the spiritual oversight of your family. If you're a wife, you've been entrusted with the spiritual oversight of your family, with your children. The truth is you've been entrusted with the mutual ministry of spiritual oversight. And so, the fact that he was gone a long time must have left some with the impression that the Lord delayed his coming. And so God gave the workers a great deal of freedom, just like God gives us a great deal of freedom. But no one has the right to take advantage of the master's vineyard or the Lord's people. Even though for us as Christians, some Christians might unfortunately say, Jesus is delaying his coming. What, well, what a wicked thing to say. Or to use as an excuse to abuse, to take advantage of, to misrepresent the Lord. But look what the passage says in verse 34. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. The implication being, it's time to receive what's appropriate. Again, in the parable, fruitfulness is the expectation. In verse 35, it says, And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now the parable reveals two main things, and I'm going to just talk about them briefly. The first thing that it reveals is the generosity of God. The second thing that it reveals is that Jesus knows the plot to take his life in verse 39, in verse 45. So as you look at it, you might say, how does this parable 
reveal the generosity and kindness and goodness and patience and love of God. Think about it. He sends servants to receive fruit. They beat one. They kill another. They stone another, verse 34 and 35. How does that reveal the kindness of God? Pause and think about it. The Lord is allowing himself and his servants to suffer rejection, to suffer injury, to suffer humiliation. Think about all that the messengers that God sent to Israel. Think about all the messengers that God has sent throughout humanity. Before the flood, God sends Noah with a message of repentance and a desire to escape a coming judgment. Think about the messengers that were sent to humanity. God sends Abraham, and then he sends Joseph. He sends Moses, and David, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Daniel, and the list goes on and on and on. John MacArthur writes, quote, God prepared a place of great beauty and blessing, and then graciously gave them stewardship of the people of Israel. It was a place of promise. It was a place of hope. It was a place of deliverance, of salvation, of security. But Israel misappropriated all of the blessings for herself, robbing God of the gratitude and the glory and the honor that was due him. Israel persecuted the prophets he patiently and lovingly sent to call her to repentance and forgiveness. Jewish tradition held that Isaiah had been sawed in two with a wooden saw, Hebrews eleven thirty seven. From scripture, we know that Jeremiah was thrown into a pit of slime. Tradition tells us that he was eventually stoned to death. Ezekiel was rejected. Elijah and Amos ran for their lives. Matt Micah was smashed in, the, in, in, in his face by those who refused to receive his message in 1 Kings chapter 22. Zechariah was murdered in God's own temple in 2 Chronicles 24 verse 2. The Old Testament history bore witness to their murderous hearts whose wickedness would culminate in the killing of the Son of God, unquote. Now think about this. If the main theme of the Bible is the love of God for people, then the sub-theme of the Bible is humanity's resistance, humanity's rejection, humanity's rebellion, the human inability to respond, and what makes matters worse, the nation entrusted to share the love of God with the people of the world, resist God, and then reject God's love. The beatings, the stonings, the killings were no exaggeration. The patience and the love of God has to be contrasted with the evil hearts of men. Each representative of God is dealt with in an abusive fashion, in a murderous fashion. 
and the fact that God sent more servants illustrates unbelievable patience. The servants are abused and then they're killed. And so what does God do? Does God send an army of angels to wipe them off the planet Earth? Does he send a global catastrophe? Does he send an apocalyptic meteor from outer space? Does he introduce a deadly strain of bacteria to wipe us off the planet? He sends his son. He sends his son. Martin Luther said, if I were God and the world treated me as if he treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces, unquote. Rebuff, refusal, rejection, insult, beating, broken promises, evil deeds. But nothing stops him. Nothing stops the love of God. The Lord keeps coming. The Lord keeps coming. And you have to understand that that's not normal. And in verse 37, look what it says. Then last of all, he sent his son. You know why that's important? It's not next to the last. Jesus is God's final word. In the 7th century, Muhammad suggested that, he, that Jesus wasn't the last word, that he was the last word. Joseph Smith in the 18th century said that he is the last word. Charles Taze Russell in the 19th century said he's the last word. Mary Baker Glover Eddy says that she's the last word. Every self-proclaimed prophet who sets themselves up as a spokesperson for God and suggests that they're the final word, that they are the ultimatum that God has given, have already missed the boat. This is the final declaration. God will send no more servants No more angels. He sends his son. And you should look carefully at the text. The murderers didn't mistake him for just another servant or just another slave. They knew that he was the heir. They knew that he was the son. They planned his murder so that they could seize his inheritance. Because under Jewish law, any man who seizes an ownerless property could own it. You don't have to be a gifted detective to figure out this murder mystery. Think of the love of the owner who sends his son to die. On a cross for man's sin. And just how great that sin is. There is no greater manifestation of love than the cross of Calvary. This is why in Romans, Paul will say, Here in his love, in that while we were still sinners, God sent Christ Jesus to die for us. Man's hatred, man's resistance didn't thwart the love of God. Man's opposition and selfishness and sin won't stop him. Spurgeon said, quote, 
If you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem you. If, he, if you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus' love made manifest, unquote. This is so true. Jesus persists in his love. He continues until we draw our last breath. But the one who rejects the Son has to face the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the severity of God. Jesus is taken. He's killed outside the camp. And humanity commits its greatest atrocity. And look what it says, the implication of rejection in verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? Look what it says in verse 41. They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Think about what you're reading. The Jewish leaders are caught up in the drama of the story. Like many Jewish rabbis, Jesus lets his audience finish the story. By the way, what will the owners do? When Jesus asks the question, you know what's happening. The audience's blood is boiling. What would you do if someone abused and killed your servants or your employees? What would you do if someone stole from you, killed your servants, and then slaughtered your own son? There's a certain judgment. This is a wonderful opportunity for the religious leaders to exercise righteous indignation. And just like in the first parable, you'll note they get the answer Right. The religious leaders come to the right conclusion. The owner is angry and able to execute judgment. He will destroy the tenants and put in new ones. In verse 40, it says, quote, when the owner of the vineyard comes, this speaks of God's triumph. This speaks of the end of the age. This speaks of the fact that God is going to right every injustice, that he is holy and just. And then the application of the rejection, look what it says in verse 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes, Jesus asks the proud Bible teachers, the religious leaders, do you read the Bible? Do you read the Bible? The reason why this becomes important is when pilgrims would march to Jerusalem during the Passover, they would sing the songs of ascent called the Hallel. Some of you who are 
old enough to remember the civil rights movement in the 60s, or maybe you've seen video or documentaries of people marching hand in hand singing, we shall overcome. In the ancient world of the Jewish person in the time of the Passover, they would sing Psalm 116. They would sing Psalm 117. They would sing Psalm 118. And Jesus quotes the song fresh in their mind from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. By the way, the very next verse reads, This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Earlier in verse 19, David says, Open unto me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them. I will praise the Lord. Jesus is accepting the messianic praise. And then he reminds the religious leaders of the section of the scripture which they sang on the way to the temple. To the religious leaders, the rejected stone was Israel. The cornerstone was the most important stone of the building. It had to be the right size. It had to be the right shape. It had to be the right alignment for the rest of the building to fit together. If the cornerstone wasn't cut just right or was just slightly imprecise, it would throw off the stability of the structural integrity of the building. And sometimes when an architect or an engineer began their project, the cornerstone would be rejected as unsuitable. In the illustration, the unsuitable stone becomes the cornerstone of God's new building. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. For centuries, Israel is the stone. Israel is rejected among the nations. Israel is despised and ridiculed and persecuted. Israel is the object of scorn. Israel is looked upon to be destroyed by the nations. Does this sound familiar even now? The chief builders of this world thought Israel was only good to be exploited and then tossed aside. But now God is going to do something. Israel became the chief nation for God to build his plan of salvation, for the world's redemption. And you'll recall Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. In that sermon, after Jesus rose from the dead, Peter began to preach and he said, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that, the, that by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man here stands before you whole. Earlier, Peter and John were walking in the gate beautiful, and they, the man was asking for alms, and he says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I to you. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And he stood up and he walked. It was a notable miracle. And then Peter says, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders and has become the chief cornerstone. In other words, the object of 
not just inspiration, not just fulfillment, but the source of salvation is going to be Jesus himself. This is why Peter says, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved. Jesus is the rejected son. And Jesus is the rejected stone. And Jesus becomes the permanent cornerstone of God's permanent building. And in verse 43, it says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruit of it. Jesus is basically saying to the religious leaders, remember how you suggested the story should end? It's going to end exactly as you suggested. The word nation translates a Greek noun ethnos, from which we get the term ethnic. It doesn't mean a nation properly, but rather a kind of people. This is, these are Jews and Gentiles who comprise the church. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's Peter's way of saying that in the proclamation of attestation of acknowledgement that God has saved you, that he's redeemed you, that he's forgiven you. This is the bringing forth of the fruit. And he says, and whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But whoever on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now think about this. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken. Look what Jesus is saying. Either you will fall on Jesus or Jesus will fall on you. Grind him to powder is an expression that suggests to smash something like a pancake or flatten it into dust. Opposition to Christ means judgment. Rejection of Christ and Jesus' salvation means an invitation to punishment. And judgment. Jesus spoke of a place called hell. Paul believed in this place. In 2 Corinthians 5.11 it says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I trust are well known in your conscience. In other words, this is Paul's way of saying, there's a reason why we're saying what we're saying. Do you believe this? Are you persuaded? I know that I am. What happens to people who won't face the truth? William Barclay writes, quote, The man who faces the truth may have the humiliation of saying he was wrong or the peril of standing by it, but at least the future for him is strong and bright. The man who will not face the truth has nothing but the prospect of deeper and deeper involvement in a situation which will render him helpless and ineffective, unquote. Jesus is either the deliverer or the destroyer. He is the savior or the judge. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. Accursed. 
O Lord, come. This is one of the things that is so hard. And it is the enemies of Jesus are destined for destruction. Everyone who attempts to destroy Jesus and the gospel invites judgment and certain destruction. In verse 45, look what it says. Now, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on it, they feared the multitudes because they took him to be a prophet. In effect, Jesus is saying, don't you get it? In the last parable, you are the sons who told the father, I'll go and work in the field and didn't. In this parable, you're the wretched vine dressers or tenants entrusted with God's vineyard. By your own word, you deserve judgment. Don't you realize the owner is God? The vineyard is the kingdom. His servants are the prophets. And I am his son. And you've rejected the chief cornerstone. But this is the stone that God has chosen to build his house. Jesus spoke of their ungodliness and wickedness and unrighteousness. But they wouldn't, even for a moment, Consider that the charges might be true. They were convinced that Jesus was speaking about them, but they refused to repent. And this is the problem. When a person refuses to repent, there is no forgiveness. This is why universalism can't possibly be true. Even though there are people who want it desperately to be true. They want it desperately that sinners need not repent of their sin, need not accept Jesus, that somehow God will wink and just simply forget sin. But just like the vineyard, he has done everything necessary to bring forth fruit. The religious leaders were afraid of men but they weren't afraid of God. And that became the big problem. And so the parable warns us of the dangers of rejecting Jesus. We learn that, that the more God loves human beings, the more people resist. The more we resist, the more we persist, the greater is love. In the beginning, the tenants were merely content to beat the servants. They were merely content to wound them. But they would eventually kill them in order to secure the property that they thought belonged to themselves. You know, it reminds me of a story many years ago. While on a visit to America, a wealthy Chinese businessman was fascinated by a powerful telescope or microscope. Looking through the lens to study crystals and the petals of flowers, he was amazed that the microscope could bring these very small objects into big, 
huge detail. So he decided to purchase the device and take it back to China. And he enjoyed it, using it, until one day he decided he was going to examine the rice he was planning to eat for dinner. He put it under the microscope, and much to his dismay, he found tiny little living creatures attached to the rice. And it caused him a lot of distress and a lot of dismay. And so you know what he did? He took the microscope and he smashed it to pieces. And he ate the rice. By the way, did smashing the microscope make the bugs go away? By pretending that the Bible isn't true? By pretending that Jesus isn't real? Will that make the judgment go away? I don't think so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you have every right to expect fruit from Israel. And you have every right to expect fruit from us. Lord, you've given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. You've given us everything to provide for our welfare, for our, our health, for our spiritual well-being. Lord, we pray that we would be men and women who love you, who desire to bring forth fruit that remains, fruit that abides, fruit that becomes evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. And so, Lord, again, we pray that we wouldn't just read the warning, but that we would heed the warning. Lord, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. Lord, I pray that they would turn from their sin and that they would turn to the Savior. Lord, I pray that once again they would remind themselves of your great love. That this constant, constant conversation that God brings to them isn't because he hates you. It's because he loves you. You turn on the TV and you hear the gospel. You turn on the radio, you hear the gospel. You open a book, you hear the gospel. You talk to a friend, you hear the gospel. And you want the voices to stop. But there's a constant, reoccurring message. Turn from your sin. Turn to the Savior. Accept his love. Embrace his invitation for forgiveness by accepting Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. And I'd like to offer you that opportunity right now. Again, Lord, I pray for every single person that they would not miss this opportunity to turn from their sin. That they would pray that simple prayer, Lord, I know that I've resisted you. I know that I've rejected you, Lord. I know that I've walked away and, and walked in a different direction. And there's this constant, constant invitation. I pray that today would be the day that you accept the invitation. Turn from your sin. Turn to the Savior. Trust in his love. Experience freedom from guilt. In Jesus' name, amen.